Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So, Team Grace, I think after last week's homily, I might owe you a shorter homily. How about that? Well, let's see what the Holy Spirit does, huh? So what I'd like to do is address how we can actively participate in the Mass. And we've been walking through the different parts of the Mass. And how many major parts of the Mass are there? Four. And what's the first part of the Mass? The introductory rites. Let's all say that like we believe it. What is it? There you are. I knew you were out there, right? That's the first part of the Mass. And the second part of the Mass is a liturgy of the Word. What's the second part of the Mass? Exactly. And that's where we are now. That's why I want to address that question of the Old Testament. Because oftentimes we hear Christians say, oh, I don't like the Old Testament. Oh, no, the Old Testament intimidates me. Or again, that very shocking, I don't like the Old Testament God. Well, let's be clear. There's only one God. There's one plan of salvation. And it involves both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we want to make sure, as Christians, we dive into and fully appreciate and understand what the Old Testament is and why we need it in terms of our vocation as the children of God. So to help us with the Old Testament, let me go to a story earlier in my life. I was finishing grad school up in Ohio. I reached out to the Bishop of Charleston and said, I'd like to apply to the seminary. He said, why don't you come back to South Carolina and teach in one of our high schools, and then you can apply to the seminary. I thought, that sounds like a great idea. So I came back to South Carolina. He asked me to teach junior honor students at Bishop Bingham High School in Charleston. So I got there. I was so excited. But I had a baby face and dark brown curly hair. Those days are gone. <laughs> and I showed up, and the mentor teacher looked right at me, and she said, they're going to eat you alive. They're going to eat you alive. She goes, you cannot smile before Christmas. Right? She said, if you can't keep classroom management, you can be the best teacher in the world, but you're not going to be able to pass on anything. She said, I want you to be strong and strict, because those students have to respect you. So I was a sponge. I just absorbed it. I was like, OK, that's what I'm supposed to do. So that fall semester, ooh, I was a booger, right? I was so strict and so strong, I didn't smile. Someone didn't turn in an assignment, lunch detention. Someone didn't turn in a permission form or something, three days detention. The disciplinarian came and said, you can't give three days detention, right? I was like, fine, one day detention, right? You get detention, you get detention, you get detention, right? Oh, it was so strict. But it was important, because I was trying to remind the students, I am your teacher. You are my students. This is our curriculum, our goals that we're going to accomplish together. I'm not your friend. This isn't buddy-buddy. You can't do whatever you want. We're here for a specific purpose and a reason, and we're going to accomplish it together. So I had to be very strong. Of course, after the, fall, after the uh, Christmas break, we come back, and I remember that first class they were back because I told a joke and nobody laughed. <laughs> they didn't know whether they were allowed to laugh. Right? And then eventually started, they started laughing, and we had a wonderful spring semester. You know, those classes from that first year of teaching, many of them still keep in touch with me today. One of them became a priest. You know what the odd part was? When he was at my, in my class, he wasn't even Catholic yet. And not only is he a priest, he's our vocations director and the chaplain at USC down in Columbia. Two of the young women in those classes went on to become religious sisters. And I've been humbled how many of them have asked me to officiate at their weddings. And in one sad occasion, the young woman who married and whose husband died, I officiated at her husband's funeral as she became a young widow. There was a strong connection. There was an interaction. But how was that possible? Because of the foundation that had been set in the fall semester. This is our proper relationship. This is why we're here. This is how this is going to happen. And then once the foundation was set, 
the relationship could flourish. There could be an exchange, a mutual interaction. Well, if we can understand that, then we should understand the Old Testament and the New Testament. We can apply those same principles to the interaction. In the Old Testament, God was teaching his people. He was teaching us, I am God, you are not. I am God, you are my people. This is my covenant. This is how you are to worship me. This is how you are to serve me. This is how you are to love me. You see, we forget that when God first began to speak, humanity had fallen into idolatry and polytheism. They were worshiping everything under the sun and the sun itself. And when God said there is one God and he alone must be worshiped, that sounded like crazy talk to them. What's he talking about? It took generation upon generation for God to teach his people there is one God. And only with that understanding could he then move to the understanding of a covenant, what it means to properly worship. God was stern. There was discipline. There were also moments of tenderness. The prophet Hosea tells us how God was teaching Israel, his people, to walk as a father teaches his young son to walk. And as the boy stumbled, the father catches him so God would catch Israel. God would catch each of us. Moments of tenderness, compassion. But God was also teaching and clearly setting the stage. He is God we are his people. And that discipline was significant, important. And it was only then that we would be able to be prepared in order to receive the anointed Savior, the Messiah. You see, the whole Old Testament was God teaching us all the places in the plan and ultimately preparing us to receive the Lord Jesus when he came, to understand who the Messiah would be, what he would accomplish, how we could recognize him, how we were called to surrender our lives to him and continue his work in our own lives. We needed the Old Testament. We still need the Old Testament. We can go back and look at the Old Testament and once again be corrected because there are still people who fall into polytheism, idolatry. People who say, I love Jesus, I worship Jesus, but they're really worshiping their money. People say, I love Jesus, I love Jesus, but they're worshiping their autonomy, their own self-independence. They say they love God, they serve God, but they're lying. There are other things in their hearts. Once again, we need that discipline of the Old Testament to come in and remind us there is one God. Oftentimes, people will want to turn God into their little pet deity. They got a little pet deity who obeys and does whatever they want. Sometimes I wonder with those people, do they ever stop back and say, gosh, isn't that odd that everything I think, God thinks the exact same way? <laughs> do they ever just step back and think, am I really worshiping the God of Revelation? Or am I just worshiping a self-projection of myself? You see, the Old Testament disciplines us. We still need that discipline because our heart is still fallen. The Old Testament can help us now spiritually to appreciate and every day welcome Jesus Christ anew because the Old Testament shows us who he is. If we don't have the Old Testament, we cannot understand Jesus Christ. Let me say that again and emphasize. If we do not have the Old Testament, we cannot understand Jesus Christ. If we don't have the context of the Old Testament, we can turn Jesus into anything. We can mold and shape him into anything we want. He will be our little pet deity. I'm reminded of the American author Mark Twain who once wrote, God made man in his image, and man is forever trying to repay the favor. Huh? We are trying to make God in our image. We need the Old Testament in order to prepare our hearts that we can receive Jesus Christ, understand who he is. You know, in the early church, there were some among us who said, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. The Messiah has come, we can get rid of it. You know, the early fathers of our faith, they excommunicated them. They said, you have no place in the household of faith, for that is the word of God. St. Paul describes the Old Testament as the oracles of God that must still be revered and appreciated by God's people. We embrace and welcome the Old Testament. We welcome its discipline. 
You know, we are told in wisdom literature that the wise, those who seek wisdom, they sit at the feet and receive correction. Sometimes we need correction. How are we going to grow as the people of God if we're not being corrected, taught, and affirmed? We have to fly to the Old Testament, seek out its wisdom and its guidance in order to understand and appreciate Jesus Christ, in order in our own hearts to receive him and declare that he alone is Lord, that he alone is the Lord of our lives. So we need this Old Testament. Now, as we talk about the Old Testament, sometimes people say, oh, but it's so intimidating. It's only intimidating because we don't know what it is. So oftentimes, with just a little bit of work, we can easily navigate the Old Testament. In fact, let's go back to Lent in our previous review, and let's see how much we can remember. Let me ask you, Team Grace, how many main parts are there in the Old Testament? Four. Four. Exactly. Good. Let's see if we remember this. Huh? What was the first part? Pentateuch. Pentateuch. Wow. Okay. How many books were in the Pentateuch? Five. Exactly. Pentateuch is Greek for five books, so we've got that, right? Okay, good. What was the second part of the Old Testament? The historical, right? I want to say you got it, but you don't. <laughs> I can't lie before the altar of God, but we're going to get it. We're going to get it, right? We just need to be reminded. The second part is the historical. What is it? How many books are there? Sixteen, probably. Now you, now you really got it. What's the third part? Wisdom. Exactly. Say it again. How many books? And the last part, prophets. What is it? How many books? 18. So good. So we got the four parts of the Old Testament. Pentateuch with five books, historical with 16. We got wisdom with seven, and the prophetic books with 18. That's the inner structure of the Old Testament. And once you begin to know more and more about the Old Testament, it becomes less and less intimidating. Sometimes when people say, I don't like the Old Testament, the vast majority of the time, it's because they haven't read the Old Testament. They don't understand it. They don't appreciate it. They haven't read it. I want to make sure here at Our Lady of Grace that we're diving into and appreciating the entirety of God's Word, that we're understanding and appreciating the Old Testament. The Old Mother Church even brings the Old Testament into our worship. That takes us to the Liturgy of the Word. Mother Church gives us a first reading from the Old Testament the entire year except during the Easter season. During the Easter season, Mother Church suspends the Old Testament because we have to hear from the Acts of the Apostles. We're being reminded of what we're called to be as a Christian community. But we, outside the Easter season, it's always from the Old Testament. And that Old Testament reading, we know everything in the Old Testament points us to Jesus Christ. Even within the Mass, that Old Testament reading points us to the Gospel. Whatever's in the Old, for Old Testament reading is going to be fulfilled in the Gospel reading. Even within the Mass, the Church is showing us one God, one plan of salvation, and the interaction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we need to look at that first reading. Let's look at our first reading today from the prophet Amos. A little bit of research, a little bit of help puts it in context. So we know that after the death of Solomon, David's kingdom divided, the north and the south. The north split off. They fell into massive idolatry. They started worshiping the golden calf of Egypt. Remember the golden calf? They brought it back and they started worshiping it in the north. And there in the northern kingdom, they began to fall into massive idolatry, moral licentiousness, God sends the prophets. He sends the prophet Amos. You go up there and you tell them to repent of their ways. The prophet gets there and do you hear his account? He was shocked. Look at how the rich take advantage of the poor. Look what they do. They can't wait for the Sabbath to be over to violate the Sabbath. They steal. They throw off the scales against the poor. They sell the poor for silver. Look at what they do. That reminds me of the expression, there's nothing more expensive than being poor. You know, we still do that in our society. 
You go to these cell phone places, if you're poor, they give you the worst possible plan at the most expensive rate because you have no ally, no advocate, no appeal. We're still taking advantage of the poor. If someone walks in there, but they're middle class or upper class, they're going to get the best plan possible. There's nothing more expensive than being poor. We have to be careful of our fallenness. The prophet Amos denounces that today. And what can we draw from that? We can look at the prophet's denunciation and look and say, when the Christ comes, that anointed Savior, he's going to be a friend of the poor, a champion of the forgotten. He's going to be a father of the orphan and the widow. We can see that the Messiah is going to be the opposite of what we see in the fallenness of the world. You see how the Old Testament can help us? But in addition to the Old Testament reading, the Mother Church gives us a psalm. Now, the purpose of the psalm is for us to spiritually move from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Isn't that powerful? That we've just heard the Word of God from the Old Covenant, and then we hear this song that leads us into the New Covenant. I think it's powerful that Mother Church wants that marked with a song. Song is oftentimes marked by joy. So we're moving into the New Testament. But let's be honest. That responsorial psalm, that can throw us off, right? Sometimes I'm sitting in my seat trying to remember what the response is, right? I'm trying to remember the response. I can't even listen to what the psalmist is saying. That's why Mother Church gives us an option. We can suspend the response during the psalm. I think for Advent here at Our Lady of Grace, we're just going to have the psalm song all through with no interactions, no divisions, no breaks. We're going to see how that goes. And if we like it, we can look and see what we want to do after Christmas. But I think it's important that we have that moment of prayer where we're moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Mother Church wants to give us that moment of prayer, that moment of reflection, to allow the words of the psalmist to be in our own mouth and our own hearts. The joy, the praise, the thanksgiving, that psalm is important. So Mother Church gives us the Old Testament, the Old Testament reading and the psalm in order to help us to understand who God is, who we are, and who the Messiah is. So that's the Old Testament, dear friends. And now what I want to do just quickly is move to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. You recall that we're walking through that second part on the Eucharist. So the second part's on the sacraments. We're looking at the part on the Eucharist. If you have your catechisms, you can join me in number 1342. So number 1342, we're continuing this walk. What does the church teach about the Eucharist? Here, number 1342 reads, From the beginning, the church has been faithful to the Lord's command. Now listen to that. The early church looked at the life of the Lord Jesus, and they said, we want to live as he lived. We want to follow his way. And the Catechism tells us the church has always been faithful to the way of the Lord Jesus. The Catechism continues. Of the church of Jerusalem, it is written, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts. That's a quote from Acts chapter 2. Does that sound familiar, dear friends? I hope so, because that was the entire point of last week's homily. That mega homily you had to sit through. That's what that was all about. Acts chapter 2. The early church looks at the life of Jesus and says, and asks, what did he do? Well, he worshipped God. He prayed. He studied the scriptures. He sought holy fellowship. And he served the vulnerable, the weak, the sick, the suffering. And the early church said, that's what we want to do. And for 2,000 years, we have continued the way of the Lord Jesus, seeking to do what Jesus did and continuing that way into our present life. Okay, so we have the Mass, and we have the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And I think I fulfilled my promise, huh? That was a shorter homily, wasn't it? I know our guests are like, that wasn't a short homily. Ah, at Our Lady of Grace, that was very short, huh? 
So I'm going to encourage you, be active in the Mass and make sure you study the Catechism of the Catholic Church.